0: As we come to 29, you almost get the feeling that you are coming to the end of a tunnel and you're seeing the light getting brighter and brighter because there is a huge transition now coming to the narrative of the Old Testament. And for the past two weeks, Moses, as a messenger and as a pastor for the people of Israel, has been giving instructions to the nation of what their first steps ought to be when they would step into the promised land. So so he's trying to cover all bases. And now he comes to the point in 29, after telling them what they ought to even do when they first step into what God had given them, he's now come to the place of giving a call to action. It is like the modern-day altar call. He is now asking the people to make a decision of coming into covenant with God. If you remember, we're not dealing with the same generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. We're dealing with their children and we read in verse one these are the words of the covenant that the lord commanded moses to make with the people of israel in the land of moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at horeb and so right from the beginning we have the scene set we have the nation of israel and they are on the land of moab which is modern day jordan and they are just steps away into the promised land but the bible wants to make a clear distinction This covenant that's about to be made, this commitment to God by keeping a certain standard of life and trusting that God will do His part in blessing them is being made by a different generation. When was the last time that a covenant was made? We were told at Horeb, which is another word for what? What location? Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 19 where God had manifested His presence and they were trembling and this generation that we read of They were young. They were under their 20s. So they they remember it, but God had called their parents to make a commitment to him. And they failed to keep it. And so God literally lets them dry up in the wilderness, and they die off, only for this new generation to come up. And now God is calling them to make a decision. And I think this is important because we touched on this in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. What this tells us is one very simple truth, that the second generation had to make their own commitment to God. This is a very simple reminder for us in here, especially if you grew up in the church, that salvation is not a family package. Just because mommy and daddy are Christians doesn't mean you're automatically getting a ticket in. Salvation is not a family package. Salvation is an individual choice and an individual experience that every single person on the face of the earth has to make for themselves at one point in their lives. It is not, again, something that's inherited. It is something that you have to make in your own mind to say, you know what, I'm going to follow the paths of my own parents by choosing to be in covenant with God. Unfortunately, you have a lot of people who are deceived in thinking that there is this bubble that they are in because they grew up in a Christian home. Listen, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful honor and privilege. But again, just like this generation, there has to come to a point in your life where you make a conscious decision to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, I don't know if I made that decision. Well, here's a simple way of asking yourself, are you following Jesus now? That's probably a good indication that you made that decision at one point. I often say this, we've said it many times, but it's a good way of reminding ourselves that I don't remember the day I was born. All I know is I'm alive. I'm alive. For somebody to come up to me and be like, were you born? I'd be like, clearly, because I'm living. And I think that's true in the spiritual. If somebody says, are you born again? I I can't maybe tell you the time or the moment or the sermon I heard or the worship song in the background when I was crying at the altar or crying in my room, but I can tell you I'm alive. Yeah, I'm I'm born again. I'm breathing. I, I know his presence and I know his word to be true. This whole chapter... Is given to do one main thing stir the people to make a decision and it can be divided in two halves really the one half is the people receiving encouragement to why they can live for God why they should live for God and the second half are warnings and what the warnings are are if you choose to make that covenant with God and walk away from that covenant here's what's gonna happen to you and me and so it's a wonderful balance if you were able to make it last week we talked about Two mountains. What were the mountains called? Ebal and Gerizim. Ebal and Gerizim. And God wanted to make a sermon illustration by putting half the tribes on one mountain called Ebal and another one called Gerizim. Ebal would symbolize the curses and the judgments of God that would come upon the disobedient. And Gerizim would represent the blessings that would come from following the Lord. And the people would echo the blessings and the curses to one another. And those mountains are a picture of God's balance and character. He is a judge and he is a father. He is merciful, but he is also fierce in holiness. And we're seeing the same balance in this chapter too. That we're going to see the wonderful promises of following him. And the dreadful consequences of claiming to follow him. And not following suit in inconsistent rebellion. So let's read here in verse 2 and 3. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all the land, and the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Here we are. He's stirring them to remember what they saw. And here... We, we've heard of this so many times. We've heard of the, the miracles, we've seen it, we've read about it, we've studied them, and we're all even, it's almost like a reflex. We, we can almost imagine what God did, the manna coming from heaven, the, the sea splitting. But I want us to focus on certain blessings and certain events that probably we wouldn't think of uh, right away when we think about the Exodus journey. And Moses highlights some of them, and they're intensely practical, but man, it speaks about the tenderness of God. And so look what he says here. In verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. I have led you 40 years. We can't read that too quickly. Me, the God of the universe, the creator of every single thing that you see, I have guided you. I have protected you. I have provided for you. I have navigated you throughout the wilderness, not for 40 days, not for 40 minutes, 40 years, day in and day out, I was leading you. Hand in hand, I was in front of you, I was behind you, I was by your side. That alone, we can just bask in the glory of it to realize the intimate nearness that God provided for the Israelites. And we might read this kind of thing we go, yeah, but what they experience is something that we we will never experience. You read Exodus and you read Numbers and you think, what they had was an advantage way beyond ours in our day in the 21st century. This has nothing to do with us. This is something that's uniquely given to them. But I challenge you, this is why it's important to understand our Bibles. I I challenge you to understand how God led them. And as you and I understand how God led them, perhaps it's not so foreign and far-fetched to us and how we can experience things by him leading us. So here's an important place to go in the book of Isaiah. Turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah and go to chapter 63. Isaiah 63, you know what Isaiah is doing here? He is doing what we should do often. He's reminiscing about what God has done in the past. He's way beyond this moment here. He's way beyond the Exodus journey. And Isaiah is choosing to record by the Holy Spirit the Exodus journey in order to not only encourage his own heart about God's faithfulness, but encourage those that are experiencing exile in his day. So he chooses to think back. But look how the Holy Spirit highlights through Isaiah how God led them in the journey that we've been reading about for the past few months and years. Go down to verse 11 and see. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. That's what we're talking about. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of them? His what? Holy Spirit. Isaiah says the Holy Spirit was put in the midst of them, and he was the very source that led them through the Red Sea. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14 of Isaiah 63. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So according to Isaiah, the one who led them through the Red Sea, the one who had them crisscross through the desert land, the one who shielded them from the enemy, the one who gave them rest, Listen, ultimately in the promised land, that's what it says here, right? You led your livestock to what? To be what? At rest, to give them rest. The person behind all of that work is who? The Holy Spirit. Who's been promised to us by Christ to come? And the Bible describes you and I as exiles and sojourners, and we've been given the person of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that led them through the wilderness is the same one that's going to lead you and me through this life. The same one. The same one who did all those wonderful blessings, the wonderful promises, the wonderful manifestations are available to you and me. Now, it might not look like a pillar of fire. It might not look like glory filling a tent, but there's something even more wonderful. He lives inside of you and me. I always wondered that. i got to be honest with you in this Bible study tonight. I've always wondered, why is it that we tend to navigate towards the Old Testament and say, they were so much better off than you and me. I would have believed if I saw a pillar of fire. I would have believed if I saw this smoke leading them. I would have been better off. My faith would be stronger. And yet, it's the Old Testament prophets that were studying and longing to wonder of the glories that you and I should be experiencing. So why aren't many people experiencing it? That's a good question. This is all theory. I hope not. This is truth. And the truth is that the same Holy Spirit that was with them, we are better off because he is permanently sealed inside of you and me. The question is, why don't we know what we should know? Why are we not experiencing what we should be experiencing? Do you know that the answer is found in Isaiah 63? Go to verse 10. Look at your Bibles. But they rebelled. And grieved who? His holy Spirit. They grieved his holy spirit, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. This idea of grieving his holy spirit. Have we seen that before? Where have we seen that? Ephesians, where? Chapter four verse what? 30. Paul borrows this from Isaiah chapter 63, to talk to Christians. He uses the same language to talk about the Holy Spirit. In the lives of believers and he goes do not what grieve the holy spirit because when you and i rebel and we grieve and we choose to walk our own way and we choose to live in sin and we choose to do things that hurt him what we forfeit is what they forfeited see see what the the first generation what isaiah is talking about right the ones that rebelled and grieved this holy spirit you know what they forfeited what did they forfeit ultimately what the second generation is going to enter into what was that The promised land that's what they forfeited ultimately and we've been studying for weeks on end that the promised land symbolizes what not heaven god's perfect will for your life and mine god's designed for you to experience something of his good will for you and me in the spiritual sense and the reason why so many are not experiencing God's perfect will for their lives. The reason why they're not seeing these doors open and these doors close, Testimonies of how God is moving you where he wants to move you. And using you the way he wants to use you is because of one thing. They grieve the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. No, no wonder why Paul borrows that. Because there's truth in here for us today. He wants to lead you. He wants to whisper in your ear. He wants to blow your mind of how he can do things in and through you. But I'm telling you guys, I'm I'm telling you, the reason why so many, it's not that the Holy Spirit leaves you. Gosh, can you imagine such a salvation? One day he seals you, the next day he removes the seal and he leaves and then he comes back. What a terror. We can't sing blessed assurance if that's the case, but I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit does with a lot of people, is that they grieve him. Christians grieve him so much, he just stays quiet. Do you know when you hurt somebody in your life, you say something about them, you speak against them, Even a family member, they don't cease to be your brother. They don't cease to be your sister. They don't cease to be your cousin. What happens? They just get quiet in your life. Nobody in their sanity would expose themselves to a person who keeps hurting them, would they? And there's something about the person of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus' own words. We believe God is one, but we believe there's three persons. And Jesus himself said, you can blaspheme me all you want. Didn't Jesus say that? You can blaspheme me all you want, but for the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, there's no forgiveness. As though to say that there is something about the Holy Spirit where there seems to be a sensitivity that is heightened. There, there is a, something about the person of the Holy Spirit that is very tender and gracious. And even Jesus himself makes a distinction. I'm telling you, if you want to do one thing to make sure that you experience the fullness of this wilderness journey into where God wants you to be, like Isaiah says, he led them to have rest. Rest for your souls. Man, you'd be amazed to know how many Christians are wandering around. They they can't sit still. They seem to be here and there. They're unsettled in their souls. Why? Because they don't feel a purpose in their lives. They're trying to find purpose in a person. They're trying to find purpose in, They're trying to find this sense of rest and the peace that comes with knowing you're in the perfect will of God. But they can't find it, and for one reason, because they don't understand relationship with the Holy Spirit. And on that note, here's another misconception. That the Holy Spirit is like a power. Like, he's like electricity. He's a force. He's the wind. He's fire. Those are things that describe the Holy Spirit, but what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? That he's what? A person. He's a person. He's not this floating thing that's around. When we ask for the Holy Spirit to come, we're asking for something to just be sprinkled on the sanctuary. We're talking about a person. And if there's any verse in the Old Testament that proves that he's a person, it's the ones that we just read. Because there are people out there that you will meet that do not believe What we believe, and that is what? God is what? Triune. He is three, but he is one. Now you might be wondering, can you please explain that? It's going to be very difficult to do so. But all I know about the Trinity, I don't have the ability to explain it to the fullest uh, ability, but I know one thing. It is expressed in the Bible. It's there. I can't deny that. Can you grieve a power? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve power? can you hurt an impersonal force or or is grieving denoting the fact that there's emotion involved there is and what we believe too is that god is triune not just in the new testament right I'm telling you, you might bump into people be like, yeah, you believe in the Trinity? That's because it's in the New Testament. You can't find anything about the Trinity in the Old Testament. All you see is God, God, God. You won't see anything about the Son. You won't see anything about the Holy Spirit. We'd be like, well, who's the Holy Spirit? They'll say, oh, it's a power. He's power. He's God's manifestation of power. Let's debunk that tonight. Because there's another place in the Bible that describes the wilderness journey. And it's not in Isaiah 63. I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 78. Go to Psalm 78. And go to verse 40 once you go to that pretty lengthy psalm. And see how the psalmist describes the wilderness journey. And it's very similar to what we just read in Isaiah. Isaiah 78, 40. I would encourage you, if you take notes, write these references down because you will see how the Bible testifies of the triune God. Psalm 78, 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Didn't we just read that? Didn't we just read that in Isaiah 63? Now the psalmist is repeating the fact in his own way, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Isaiah has said that loud and clear. Now scroll down to Psalm 78 verse 52. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Didn't we see that? Didn't the psalmist say the same thing that Isaiah did? Those two very same truths. They rebelled. They grieved him. He led them like a flock. All of those things are echoed almost word for word. Now here's the question. Who is the psalmist talking about when he's saying he, he, he? Now go all the way to the beginning of the psalm, verse 4. The psalmist is saying in the beginning, we will not hide them from their children, but tell it to the coming congregation, generation rather, the glorious deeds of who? The Lord. The glorious deeds of the Lord. The name of God. Who God is, the person of God. Known as Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And then for the rest of the psalm, he begins to describe what we just read in verse 40 and verse 52, that they rebelled against him. That he led them like livestock. So either we have a contradiction or we have confirmation of God being triune. The contradiction is this. We read in Isaiah 63 that who is being grieved against? The Holy Spirit. Who led them into a place of rest? The Spirit of the Lord, right? Isaiah 63, verse 11, verse 14, right? You go to Psalm 78, and it says that the person who was grieved was the Lord. And the person who led them was the Lord. So either we have a clear contradiction that there are two different people doing this or the Holy Spirit is the Lord. I hope we're following with that tonight. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not a force, he's not a power, he's not just a manifestation of his ability, he is God. That's why there is no, there's a flow that he can confidently by the Spirit say, he led, and he was grieved, and he was doing this. And Isaiah to say, it was the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is God. Praise God how the Bible, if you just carefully see it and read it, you can make these wonderful connections and realize that what we believe to be true is in fact true. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 29. Look at verse 5. I have led you for, what, 40 years in the wilderness... Now, look, look at this. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. For how long? 40 years. Now, I'm sure on average, a person gets a new pair of shoes every year. For some of us in here, it's more than a year. You get more shoes in, in a year's time than another person. God says for 40 years, you didn't have to go and buy a new pair of shoes. For 40 years, you didn't have to go and get a new outfit. For an entire generation's length of time, you had the same clothes, you had the same shoes, they did not wear out. That is a miracle in itself. They're walking through the wilderness, they're on their feet, they're laying in dust, surely something's going to happen to their clothes, and God says no, because what God is reminding them of is His preserving power. Now, to be honest, I don't know how that miracle worked. Like, did their shoes grow with them as they grew up in age? I don't understand. Did their outfit grow in length as they got taller? I don't understand, but God wants to highlight the fact that it was a miracle. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, Lord, it's amazing, and I'm trying to visualize how this worked. But here's the principle. God wants to let the people of God know in the Old Testament and for us today of one simple truth, that he actually cares about your shoes. Not the brand that you wear, and not if they're the coolest thing in your day. He cares about the littlest things in your life for the sake of your comfort and for your good. Think about, I mean, not just the Red Sea, like, that's a wonderful thing. Then he zooms in to the very details of the lives and says, I want to take care of your shirt on your back. And I want to take care of the laces on your shoes. That's how involved God wants to be in your life and mine. Do we believe it? We think, I-, I don't know about that. And then Jesus echoes that by saying, would you stop worrying about your clothes? And would you stop worrying about the food that you're going to eat? Because God took care of it in the Old Testament. He's going to take care of it in the New Covenant. That's the that's a simple understanding. Now, listen, if God wants to preserve the things that you and I get bored of in our closets, that we worry about, what am I going to wear, what am I going to wear, what am I going to wear? If he cares about that, how much more does he want to preserve your health? How much more does he want to preserve your mind? How much more does he want to preserve your faith? And if there's anything that's going to happen to any of those things in terms of what? Your health, your life, he's in complete sovereign control over it. This is just this is a, a huge statement to make. I care about the very souls underneath your shoes. It is an unbelievable truth of his preserving passionate love for his people. As much as they grumbled and everything else. Remember, it was 40 years, right? That even if they were disciplined, God cared for them. That year, those years were a matter of discipline and he still takes care of their needs. This is the tender mercy of God leaning into them and he's making it clear that he holds things together. He holds every aspect of your life together. The job that you have, he's gonna hold it together. And if, it's gonna, if something's going to happen, it's because he's letting it happen. Everything, the ministry that you're a part of, he's going to hold it together. And the moment he thinks that you need to move on, he'll let you know. Every component of your existence is guarded by him. Because he tells us, man, your shoes, they were kept together because I spoke to those shoes and says, don't you dare wear out on them. Don't you dare wear out on her. You keep on until I say so. It's a wonderful thing. Look at verse 6. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, he just talked about his preserving power. Now he's talking about his providing power. He goes, there is no access to grocery stores in the desert. And I did that on purpose. I made sure that you couldn't make up a feast for yourself, I made sure that the resources were scarce for one reason, that you would know that I am the Lord. That you would know that I, being God, can make something come out of thin air. And he literally did that with bread from heaven. Morning by morning, it would appear on the dew. It would appear on the grass and they would feast on it. And he's just trying to tell them one simple thing. I was there day by day by day by day to feed your bellies, to put something in your mouth and to make sure that you were sustained for another 24 hours. And you know what they said actually? They actually said this. They said this in Psalm 78 verse 19. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? That's what they said. At one point in the journey, they go, there is literally nothing before us. Can God actually spread a table in the wilderness? And God says, watch me do it. And he did it. To prove one thing that he is the Lord. Now look at verse 7. And when you came to this place, we've read this so many times, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. So he talked about his preserving power. He talked about his providing power. And now he's talking about what? His protecting power. He goes, you have faced enemy after enemy after enemy, and I was the one who stepped in. You were infant as a nation. You were unskilled as an army. You had no weapons at your disposal. But I'm the one who literally stepped in and made miracles happen. Now, here's the thing. We look at that and we go, we, we don't have to deal with Bashans and Ogs. That's true. We got something more fierce. You got the devil himself and your own flesh that you can't detach from day by day, but wants to throw you into disobedience minute by minute. I think the flesh is more of a problem than Og down the street. What is God saying to them means for us? That, listen, I am there to literally help you overcome every single foe that you face in life. Whether it's Satan or whether it's your own flesh. I'm the one. I'm the one that brings victory into your life. I'm the one that provides power for you to be able to look at these things and say, because of him on my side, I can override whatever tries to swipe me off my feet. So you see what Moses is doing to his people, right? Here they're all standing, and they are about to make a call to action to say yes or no to God. And he's saying, do you realize that he has preserved you? Every thread. Do you realize that he has provided for you every day? Do you realize that apart from him, you would have been swallowed up like a cracker in a moment by the enemies that wanted to snuff you out? And they are surely being excited and overwhelmed by all of this. And you're thinking, why is he doing this? Look at verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them for one reason, that you may prosper in all that you do. Preserving power. Providing power. Protecting power of the past. Why is he telling them of the past? So that they can experience the same things in the future. Moses is telling him this because they're about to enter a new season. He goes, don't you want this in your life? Don't you want to experience what God gave your parents and even you in the years behind? Don't you want that for the days ahead? Surely you want that. Who would say no to such a thing? Who would hear that? Who would hear God can preserve every element of my existence? God can provide every single need that I have and God is willing to push back every force that blasts from hell I'm not interested. I think I can come up with something better than all of that. Thank you so much Moses, I'll come back for the next year's conference. Do you think anybody thought that? Surely they were as excited as you and I should be. That God was willing to give them a lifelong guarantee of such privileges every single day of their life. And surely they're going to say yes to this, and we see that they do make a covenant with God. But why would somebody say no? Stay in ministry long enough, and you'll realize that people say no to Jesus Christ. Stay in ministry long enough, and you'll realize that in a setting like this, there are some that are bored out of their minds, and they could care less of what you're saying. Stay in ministry long enough. Stay in ministry long enough, and... You can preach the most gracious truth about who Jesus Christ is and people will walk out as though you said absolutely nothing. Stay in ministry long enough. Stay as a Christian long enough. Preach to your coworkers long enough. Sit down with your family members long enough. And you will realize a baffling thing that there are some people that can hear wonderful truths and go, I'm not interested. Do you know why? Because of verse 9. Look at it again. Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them. That's why. Because there's a condition upon the blessings, my friends. Because there's a standard that God sets. And when people hear the standard, it is so overwhelming to their desire to live for self that they are willing to reject the blessings that come with it. Provision. <laughs> preservation protection, I'm in. Die to yourself. No, thank you. That's what happens day in and day out. No, I want to live for self. And I'm going to try to conjure up my own blessings because thank you so much. I know how to protect myself. I know how to provide for myself. And I know how to preserve things in my life. And for a person to come to a place where they think they can do that and actually experience it in this lifetime is one of the most, I would call it a curse almost. One of the best things that can happen to your life in this place if you're not a Christian is for everything to fall into shambles by the grace of God. So that you would realize that you are not God of your own life. And that you do need someone outside of yourself to help you navigate yourself from here until eternity. And these people thought to themselves, surely this is exciting. And it's exciting, too, for people that hear it. But when the conditions come, man, you watch people squirm. Who are these blessings for, though? Look at verse 10. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is at your camp, from the one who chops your wood, look who he's talking about, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. What is he saying here? You're all standing and hearing this invitation to make a covenant with God, and it's for every single person, from the little one to the one who's the servant who chops up wood in the back of your home day in and day out. It's for everyone, the servant and the king, the homeless person and the politician. It is available to whoever will say yes to it. That's gospel truth right there, tucked in Deuteronomy. So it is today. Whosoever thirsts, let him come and drink. Whosoever hungers, let him come and feast. Whosoever wants life, let him die. Whosoever, anybody. And here it is in the Old Testament form. There is nobody that God will discriminate against. There is nobody that God will push away. Whoever wants to come, let them lay down their lives and God will gladly welcome them into his family. Now, we have ended at the portion of the blessings of following him. Wonderful blessings we've now entered into where Moses fully realizes that even if the people say yes to God in their excitement and their zeal, oh look, daddy and mommy did it, my cousins did it, my brothers did it, all right, might as well, let me follow Jesus. Moses is fully aware that even in the emotional aspect of all of this, that people are going to say yes and there's going to be a threat to their commitment. So for the rest of this chapter, it's all warnings about what happens if you say yes but end up turning away from God. And as you and I hear, we will realize one thing. That the warnings is very much the same for us today. N- not the punishments, the warnings. The punishments were different for Israel than they are for us. But the warnings are very much the same. Now look. Look here in verse 16 down. You see all these things down to verse, or chapter 3. We're not going to go through all of them. Because there is one main thing that I believe Moses is concerned about. There is a sensual threat that Moses... It's pumping in his veins where he's like, this is going to be the determining factor for so many. I have to warn them with clarity. It's going to make people feel uncomfortable. It might expose some people. But it is absolutely essential for them to hear this now before they experience it without warning and are overcome by it. What is Moses' main heartthrob here? What is his main concern for the people? Look at verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. The New King James says that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. Beware. You know what that means? Like, be very careful. I'm warning you people of Israel that among you there would be a root. And that root will produce bitterness. And that root will produce gall. It will produce something poisonous to those that are around its environment. That's Moses' warning. Now, for Moses to use the word root means he has something very specific in mind. Okay? A root is the part of the plant that is buried in order to receive nutrients to sustain the rest of the the plant. And we can talk about what a root does and all these wonderful things, but here's one main thing about a root. It's hidden. can't see it. Often you can't. It's underground. It's buried. You see the fruit. You see the rest of it. But the component of the plant that is the root is oftentimes naked, and it's hidden from the human eye. You can't see it unless you dig it up. So what's Moses saying here? When he's saying, beware lest there be a root among you. What Moses is saying is very simply this. He's concerned that in the group, in the community of the Israelites, there would be an influence that would lead them in the wrong direction. And what Moses is concerned about is a person who has hidden idolatry in their hearts. A hidden love for something greater than God in the midst of the community. So who can that root be? Well, look at the beginning of verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. And then he goes on to talk about the root. Listen, a man, a woman, a group of people, like a clan. You know you can have clans in churches, right? Have you seen them before? Clans in churches? No? Okay. Clans, tribes, any one of those people can become a root of bitterness. And Moses is saying, I have a concern that this root will stay long enough in the garden of God that it will begin to corrupt and contaminate all the other plants that are trying to bear right fruit. That's Moses' concern. And Here's a challenge for people in the church that a root is not easily recognizable at first. When you see it, you can't identify it right away. And that speaks about the heart. Leaders can't be able to do that. You know, people assume that people in leadership can read people's minds. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. That is not, that's God. The only responsibility that leadership has, and even the people of God as a whole, is to be able to identify the budding, beginning stages of the fruit that such a root will create and go there's some there's something wrong here but until then there can be a setting just like this brothers and sisters and it could be very possible that there are one two, maybe a clan of people who are in fact a root producing bitterness and poison fruit time will only tell right time will only tell Because just like a plant that produces something, so it is with a person. Stick around them long enough. Let them stay in long enough. And you begin to, over time, see language, see behaviors, see social media posts where you go, this is dangerous. But here's a wonderful thing. Every person in here can find out right now if they have that root in their hearts. Listen, every person, right here, right now, you, you don't need a prophetic word. You don't need God to write something in the sky. Every person in this room can determine whether or not they are that root in their church. Would you like to know? It's in verse 19. One who, this is the root. One who, what? When he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, what? I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This is how you know if somebody has the root that produces bitterness, that produces poison in their lives and the lives of those around them. Ready? You want All you have to do tonight is one thing. This is not exaggeration. This is not emotional. Appeal. This is just a sincere thing. All you need to do is ask yourself tonight, do I say in my heart, I shall be safe"? though I walk in willful disobedience to God. I'm okay. Because God doesn't mind this behavior. I'm all right. Because surely God will not discipline those who clearly walk in contradiction to his word and the standard of wholeness. Listen, if you can say that in your heart, if you are living your life and framing your convictions according to that statement, I have to tell you like Moses told them, you are the root of evil in your community. You are the thing that will eventually produce bitterness and poison to those around. All you have to do is ask yourself if I say that in my own heart. So Moses is saying, if you hear the words of this covenant and you're in relationship with him and you go, ha, I'm fine to live in my own way or to live in this aspect of my life the way I believe I should, though God says, no, 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 I'm fine because I'm in covenant with God. You know, many people are unfortunately taking the idea of God securing us in our salvation to such a degree where they are living as though they are not saved. That's the same warning here. To understand the wonderful mercies of God in his unconditional love and covenant and to say, I shall be saved live as though I don't have a standard to live by. And God wants to give through Moses the warnings of even those who are in covenant with him who would live in such a way. But it's not just for the person. Listen, the destruction of that kind of a mindset, please hear me tonight. Please hear me tonight. The destruction for that kind of a mindset will not stay with you. It will affect those around you, guaranteed. That's what the whole warning is about. The whole warning is about a person who would live in that kind of hiddenness of heart and eventually because they are so blended in, they would influence those around them and be contaminated themselves. And Moses says, please make sure that you do not have that root in your own heart because it will have catastrophic consequences to the holiness of the community that you are a part of. Here's the thing. We look at that and we go, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament warning. I've I've never seen such a thing in the New Testament. And yet, the same language is used by an author in the New Testament to warn against the same danger in the church. Does anybody know where that verse is? When he talks about a root of bitterness? Hebrews. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 15. You can turn there, you can write reference to it. But let's read it on the screen together and see what the author of Hebrews says to the Christians. He's speaking to Christians, he's not speaking to the world. He's not speaking to non-believers. He's speaking to a believing community and he says in Hebrews 12:15, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, why? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled." It's right there. The author of Hebrews goes all the way to Deuteronomy 29, and he takes the same warning that Moses gave to the Israelites, and he brings it into the New Covenant Church, and he says, please, guys, make sure. This root of bitterness is not talking about having bitterness in your life. That verse is not saying, like, you have unforgiveness in your life. Make sure you don't have unforgiveness in your life so that you defile many. That's not what it's saying. It's saying those who are a root that produce bitterness, listen, look at the warnings. Springs up, so it's going to show up. And what's it going to do? Causes trouble. Do you think that stuff causes trouble? Absolutely it causes trouble. It's very difficult to be in community with a person that lives like that. It causes so much trouble. There's compromise, there's luring, there's all these difficulties. It's very difficult, it causes trouble, and by it, some, a few, Many become defiled. All you need, my friend, is the right personality. All you need is a little bit of charisma. All you need is that leadership kind of aroma that you give out. And many can become defiled because you have the root of bitterness in your heart. Scary. So what's the solution? I present to you tonight the option of being this or something else in your church community. You and I can be a root that produces poison, like this verse says. And this is not talking about temptation, right? I hope you're not getting the idea. A root is deeply ingrained in somebody's heart. A root is something that is deeply and firmly fixed on the bed of your will. We can either be that or we allow God to, by His Spirit, take that root and uproot it and replace it with something else. So tonight, every person in here has an option of being this right here. Or something else that the Bible describes. You ready? Here's our final scripture for the night. Psalms 92. Psalms 92, verse 12 to 14. And see what the scripture says about what you and I can be if we choose. In a well-known psalm. Psalms 92, verse 12. The righteous. The righteous. Those who rightly relate to God. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. And grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now look at the next verse. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. And I love this verse in verse 14. Here's a promise. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of poison. Bitterness. Compromise. Leading many to sin. Now they are ever full of sap and green, life, fragrance, aroma, fruit that people can feed off of and enjoy and be blessed by. But what's the secret? I love how the King James put it. It's it's almost telling you the sequence. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord, that's what's going to happen. And the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, what was in the house of the Lord? What was the house of the Lord all about? What was it? What was there waiting for them? What was in the curtain, the deepest part? God Almighty, the presence of God. What was around in the temple? What was the people they were going there to gather? So something else means the house of the Lord, means the people of God. I'm going to surround myself with God's people. And lastly, if there's any activity that describes what's going on in the house of the Lord, what is it? What's happening day in and day out? Sacrifice. Bloodshed. Night and day, there's something burning on the altar, some kind of animals being sacrificed, which is a picture not only of Jesus, but of you and I being sacrificed as our bodies laid down for God. So when he says, they who are planted in the house of the Lord, it does not mean they who go to church every Sunday morning. I know people that go to church every Sunday morning and they're, again, roots of bitterness and poison. So the secret isn't come to church and hear a sermon. That's not the secret, it's what the house of the Lord represents. And they who choose to take their very hearts and plant it in what? The presence of God. Knowing him, as we just heard in the intermission. They who plant their hearts to be surrounded by who? God's people. And they who plant their hearts to live a sacrificial life, to lay down their lives day and night, just like it would be in the temple. They who live in such a way, here's the direction that you're headed into. That in old age, you're still going to bear fruit. That in old age, you're going to still produce life. And you're still going to be able to draw people to Christ because of your very presence. So tonight at this Bible study in Deuteronomy 29, there's a call to action just like for them. Here's the call to action. Every person has a choice to do either one of these things. To get rid of that mentality that says, I shall be safe. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That stuff will kill you, man. That stuff will kill others too. Or you recognize that in your heart. you would be like, Lord, you know, I'm not fully committed to you. And I've taken this whole thing called the grace of God for granted. I'm going to ask that you remove this from my heart. And that you give me the grace to plant myself in the house of the Lord. Let me know your presence. Let me know how to lay down my life day in and day out. Here's the byproduct of that. Life comes in. Do you think that this life was for the person? See, the threat of the root of bitterness was not just for the person, it was for those around the person, right? He says that the community would not be led astray. Do you think this is just for the person, for you to have life and sap for yourself? Look at verse 15 and what does it say? To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. All of that stuff has to do with proclamation, all of that stuff has to do with witness. All of that stuff has to do with effectiveness to those who are around you. This cannot exist in the heart that says, I shall be safe. Though I live in the stubbornness of my heart. It cannot exist. I encourage you strongly tonight, not just for your own sake, but for those that you do life with, man, you have the option of contaminating them or blessing them. You have the option of stirring them towards Christ or stirring them away from Christ. You have the option. God gave it through Moses to Israel. God gives it through people today in the new covenant. Choose the other. Please choose the other. One final verse. And we're closing. Look at the last verse of the chapter of Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. We've heard this verse before, right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What this verse is saying, it seems unrelated. We're like, why is Moses ending this section of his message with this? We'll get to that in a reason, uh, for a moment. But what this is talking about is a very comforting truth. Listen, as you and I read our Bibles, and as you and I grow... There's going to be some things about God, about life, about even theology that we're not going to understand. We're not going to understand. There are some things, I know it hurts our pride, but there are some things that are secrets and God alone knows them. And unfortunately, there's so, there so many people that are living their entire Christian existence to try to figure out the things that only God says, I will know, you will never know. Right? There are people who have dedicated years and years of years of trying to understand something that God says, listen, there's a distinction between me and you. I'm God, you're not. There's some things I understand that you will never understand. That's what that verse is saying. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So why has God God chosen to reveal certain things and not reveal other things? Where are the dinosaurs? I want to know because that's going to, that's going to do, I need to know where the dinosaurs are in the Bible. I want to know, does God predetermine everything or does man have free, I want to know everything. But why has God chosen to go, mm, I'm going to stay silent on this issue, I'm going to stay silent on this issue, I'm going to stay silent on this issue, I'll reveal this, I'll reveal that. Because God in his wisdom, in whatever he's given us, is enough for what thing? what thing? That we may do all the words of this law. The thing that God is concerned about the most and understanding and studying and and doing all these things is that at the end of all of it, you would be a better follower than a theologian. Whatever God has revealed has one motive in mind that you as a result would obey him, love him, adore him and serve him more fiercely than you did before your study. Can we have conversations? Absolutely. Can we talk about tough parts in Scripture? Sure. Is it a sin to ask curious questions? No, it is not. But to give all our focus and attention to arguments and things that the Bible is not clear on, only to waste away and not be effective witnesses, this is what this verse is all about. God has revealed what he's revealed so that you can know him enough, love him enough, and serve him enough to his good pleasure and for your good. That's it, take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. And he says this, I believe, at the end of this whole thing because God wants his people to obey him. He's making a call to action. Serve me, serve me. I've revealed what I've revealed to you so that you can serve me. Would you serve me? Would you not become that root of bitterness in your life and the life of other people? That's the invitation that you and I have. Call to action tonight. In this Bible study, I know it sounded like a sermon, but just in this place, ask God to remove that if it is in your heart. Don't let it stay there long. Be honest before God. If you feel like there is a false sense of safety in your sin, it is deception. Ask God to point it out and to uproot it only to replace it with a heart that says, I'm going to plant myself in the presence of God. I'm going to plant myself with the people of God. I'm going to plant myself in a sacrificial lifestyle. And from there, you'll be 80 years old and you'll be just as fervent and effective as you were when you were 25. That's a promise. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you said... That you are the vine and we are the branches and your father is the vine dresser Lord come and prune us tonight remove from my heart what hinders growth and genuine fruit remove from my heart any root that will produce poison instead of life Take my heart. Do only what you can do. I want to prosper in all my ways. Holy Spirit, I wanna know your leadership. (coughs) Holy Spirit, I wanna know how you can lead me to rest. Holy Spirit, help me fall in love with Jesus. God, I need you. Turn to you, Lord. Help me love you, Lord. Help me love your commandments, Lord. Lord, I lean into you. Fill me. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Lord, make Jesus real in my life. Make him real, Lord. Manifest. Lord, you know, you know, you know, we are not fooling you. You know, Lord, you know. We don't want to hide from you like Adam did. Lord, I even pray for the person who would not even dare flirt with the idea of having a root that would produce bitterness and poison. Lord, right now we just focus on the heart that loves you but wants to love you more heart that knows you but wants to know you more, the heart that is dedicated to you but has a frustration because they know that there are greater places to be in you, but they can't get there in this moment. We just lean into you by faith. Say, Jesus, I believe you're alive. I believe that you are sitting at the right hand of God. But I believe according to that promise earlier, you will make your home with me. You will manifest yourself to me. Jesus, I run into the way of your commandments. Before we sing, if there is anything that you believe has grieved the Holy Spirit, just confess it and give it to him. If there's anything in your life that grieves the Holy Spirit, say, God, take it from my life. I don't wanna forfeit what you have to offer because of this sin. But God, I don't have the power to overcome this sin. Look at me, Lord, I'm desperate, I'm a beggar, I'm broken. Take this sin from me. Crush this sin from my life. God, crush this pornography from my life. Lord, crush this love for money from my life. Lord, crush this pride in my life. Crush this love for the things of this world. God, I can't do it. You need to do it. Take it from me, God. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Here's one more verse before we sing. You can just stay in that place of prayer. In Psalms 119 verse 34, the Psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments on one condition, when you enlarge my heart. When you enlarge my heart, then I will run into the way of your commandments. In other words, God, I can't run in obedience until you first deal with my heart. I can't even begin to take a step of faithfulness until you take this heart that has so many roots of evil and compromise and iniquity until you do something with your own hands and enlarge in my heart to love you and cherish you above all things. You need to get in here and do surgery, God. You need to get in here and do some work in me, Lord. I lay down on the operating table of faith. And I ask that you do what only you can do.